Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. This is usually a weekly conversation about food and passion and making a difference in the world, but this is a special time and there are, believe it or not, some things even more important to us than food. And one is the upcoming election. And we've got quite an expert on it in Clarissa Martinez, the Deputy Vice President of UNIDOS US, which is right around the corner uh, in downtown Washington, D.C. from our Share Strength headquarters. Uh, Clarissa, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. And I would love to come back and talk about food. <laughs> well, we have to do that. We almost always have a chef on because we have so many people from the culinary community who were involved with Share Our Strength. And we usually talk about the intersections of which there are many between food and health and food and the environment, food and education. But this week, uh, because of everything that's going on in the world and the fact that we have an election coming up and some of us are political junkies, we wanted to talk to you. And it's also Hispanic Heritage Month, and it seemed uh, like it made sense for a lot of reasons to, to have you on. And as we're, you know, as I was thinking about this conversation, Clarissa, I was thinking about when the, and, and I, I feel like you have great expertise in two issues, one having to do with immigration and immigration policies and the other having to do with Latino civic engagement and how we get people to turn out to vote. And I was thinking of, I don't know, kind of like the paradox of when this administration uh, came into office, the big issue that was riveting and that was the political issue of the day was immigration and whether the wall was going to get built and the restrictions on people coming into the country. Uh, and it's still obviously a critical issue. It's a little bit less in the mainstream news now because of the pandemic and everything else that's going on. But could well be that this administration's fate is decided by Latino voters. I've seen one headline after another about Latinos could change the 2020 election, and I've seen you quoted in quite a few of them. So we're going to talk about all that. But uh, first, I just wanted to find a little bit more about you and how you came to Unidos, what you were doing before that how these sets of issues became your passion. You know, the the interesting thing is that um, there's a lot of folks who are very disciplined and have a plan that they follow and, you know, their 10-year plan or their five-year plan. And I'm always in awe of those people. I am not one. So when you say, how did I end up at Unidos? I think that in many ways... I'm sort of an accidental advocate. And then other folks may say, it's not accidental, it was fate, right? So the interesting thing for me is that I came to the United States as a teenager and you know the courage that is often associated with immigrants who leave everything familiar behind to go into something completely unfamiliar that courage is on my mom's. I I came kicking and screaming and from Mexico. Um, we came from Mexico and, you know, every time I stopped to think about it, think about what it might have taken for my mom to make that decision. And, and the, those are the kinds of decisions that immigrants throughout our history have made. And one of the reasons why I think our country remains a vibrant nation, um, it's because immigrants and the native born together 
create this beautiful potluck, right? Because I always go back to food. Anyway, so it's this amazing potluck where you contribute things that you know, that you may know better than other folks. Other folks bring what they know better and it works out beautifully. And it has allowed us as a country to innovate, to navigate an increasingly complex world and to solve problems. Anyway, for my mom, um, she always had this image of the ideal that is America. And I think that's why she, like many other immigrants, take all the risks and, and, and walk into the unknown to try to create a better life for them, you know, for her, for, for our family, but also for the communities in which you end up settling. And that for us was in LA, in California, where my mom had uh, a few sisters that were already settled in that area of the country. And what uh, year of your teenage years were you when you came to the US? So when I came, I started the 10th grade. First year in high school was the, I know there are some high schools that started in the ninth grade. I started in the 10th grade, which was the first year of high school in the house, the high school I went to. So if you think about all the angst that goes with starting high school, but not only starting high school, but starting high school in a different country and in a different language, that was me. And was it a jumble of emotions that you can't even untangle? Was it excitement and anxiety and fear? And what did it feel like? I mean, can you remember at that age, just like what you like, literally what you felt the day you walked into school? Oh, I remember like it was yesterday. Um, I think anxiety. So we, we did not, we had come to visit when my mom and working with her sisters created this plan that she was actually going to stay. And so for me, I think I spent a couple of weeks trying to think of how maybe I could break a leg so I didn't have to go to school because I was that anxious about it. <laughs> and then I decided that it was going to be less painful to just go to school than to break my leg. <laughs> <So> <laughs> but the interesting thing is that we were all so focused on, okay, what papers do we need to go there and who's going to take us and where do you need to go to enroll and do all of these things that none of us realized until everybody left and they left me there that we hadn't discussed how I was going to get back home at the end of the day. And I didn't know how to get home at the end of the day. <laughs> so, you know, I remember that because it really is an, uh, an an illustration, right? Like you come into a new place and at that time, your world can be quite small and your range of motion and what's known to you is so small. So eventually, I mean, my whole family at some point realized and there was an APB out and my cousins were looking for me and and I was wandering around trying to see if I saw anything familiar. But uh Anyway, uh, I did make it home and then figured my way from home to school and further and further out beyond from that day on. Wow. And what took you from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C.? 
So keeping with the theme of not having a plan, um, when I graduated college, I didn't have a plan lined, a job lined up, and I also didn't have school lined up after that. So my boss at the time, I was working for the Upward Bound program there at Occidental College, um, you know, was gently encouraging me to go out and and move on. And, and so I had never considered it, but uh, he told me about a job with the Hotel and Restaurant Workers Union, and I ended up applying there for a job, and that was my first job. So there you have another food connection. I was representing workers in the hotel and the restaurant areas and um, and learned a lot. I had never planned nor knew very much about unions in the United States, and the workers in both of those industries are, and particularly in a place like LA where I was working, are very many of them are Latino and of a great portion of them are immigrants. So that's where the act, what is it accidental or is it fate comes in because it connected very much to myself being an immigrant and to the experience of my family. My mom was a seamstress, so she worked in the garment district in LA, and my first job in the US was in the garment district. So I eventually had a chance to work with the Garment Workers Union, which again, very much connected to my mom's lived experience and some of what I had seen in the time working there as well. So immediately after college, I worked uh, for a couple of different unions, um, mostly that whose members were immigrants and many Latino. And from then on, I then got asked to consider different things by professors I had during college and or other folks. So I ended up working on California-Mexico relations in dealing with a lot of issues that were affecting the Latino community in the U.S. Uh, in relationship with Mexico and vice versa. And from there started actually working more intently on issues affecting the Latino community in the United States. And that's how I ended up at Unidos U.S. And as a as another example of sometimes how small the world is, Unidos, back when it was known as National Council of La Raza, was one of a handful of organizations that worked doggedly in the legislative arena to make a legalization program happen in the late 80s, which was something that I was able to benefit from and made a world difference in my life and made made it possible for me to eventually become an American citizen. And that was not known to me at the time. And then eventually I end up working for that organization. And so the work that I do now, whether it is in the immigration arena and the civic engagement arena, or in initiatives to try to reweave the ties that bind us as Americans is very much a way of paying it back and paying it forward. You know, we haven't really said what Unidos is or does, and 
I worked on Capitol Hill in the 80s. You mentioned the late 80s. And I knew La Raza as this incredibly uh, important force in, in educating members of Congress and shaping policy. So I could probably describe UNITAS, but I know I couldn't do it as well as you. So tell us just a little bit about what UNITAS is and does. Unidos U.S. was known as National Council of La Raza. We changed our name a couple of years ago, and we are the nation's largest Latino civil rights and advocacy organization. And we do our work, um, I often say, through the three Ps, policy, programs, and people. We do policy and legislative work on four core areas that are education, health, economy, and civil rights and immigration. Our programs also function in those areas. And people is not only our wonderful staff and Unidos Familia who makes that work possible, but also our network of community-based organizations across the country, nearly 300 of them, who every year serve millions of citizens and immigrants alike in a variety of areas. Well. I want to talk a little bit about why the immigration uh, issue has been so difficult to solve. I remember a conversation I had with former Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, who was very involved in, the, of course, the food programs that Sheriff Strength and the American Hungry Campaign were involved in. And Vilsack is, you know, is, I think of as a moderate Democrat from Iowa originally, spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill, and he told me that, you know, he said, Every Democrat and every Republican, virtually everyone in the House and Senate, if you talk to them behind the scenes, they know what needs to be done to solve immigration, but publicly they won't say it. They won't be for it. Well, why is there this resistance to some of the common sense solutions we need to get this issue solved? You know, it is fascinating because I think that the tragedy and the inaction on immigration um, you know, on Congress delivering an immigration system that America can be proud of. It's not coming from the American people. The, the fascinating thing is if you look at surveys, opinion research for the last 10 years, the majority of the American people actually wants to see a functional immigration system. They support legal immigration. They want to create an avenue for immigrants who are rooted in our communities and who are currently undocumented to come forward and to get on the books and get good with the law. But I do think that there are some vocal and very loud minorities that have hijacked the ability to make progress on this issue and have made legislators scared to take action. So that's on the one hand. And then also, I think beyond immigration, as we know, we, there, we see many times some politicians using the politics of division, right? Trying to divide us from one another in a way to distract us so that we don't hold them accountable for things that are not going well. And immigrants have become a favorite foil in that kind of equation. They're not the only ones, right? We, we see all kinds of examples of this, stirring anxiety 
about African-Americans by talking about crime or about Muslims by talking about religion and different things like that. And part of those politics of division use the issue of immigration to stir up anxiety about the demographic change in our country and to stir up antagonism against immigrants and against Latinos and other communities. So in some ways, we have the deeper problem of how do we create an antidote to to those politics of division? And then on the issue of immigration specifically, how do we give greater voice to the majority of American people who actually want effective solutions on this? And the effective solutions, like I said, make sure that you know we support legal immigration, that we have a path for rooted immigrants in our country to come forward, and to stop having policies whose first and foremost objective is to inflict pain like this uh, separation of children from their parents at the border, which is also happening in other parts of the country. I'm sure you've been to the border to uh, witness that. I have an, uh, a number of delegations from Share Strength have as well. To, you know, to me, one of the ironies is people who don't go to the border probably have this image of it uh, in their minds of a, of a place of turmoil. And it is to, to a degree for uh, new immigrants who have been separated or who are are stuck there. But when you go and spend time in the Rio Grande Valley, the culture is so rich. We could talk. We could do a whole separate podcast just about the food there because the food is so amazing, and it's such a magical place that you would think you would want the entire country to be like this. But most people don't get to experience that firsthand. Well, and and that's one of the fascinating things, right? That there are so many, and I and I can I can understand how many people feel that. There's so much contradictory information, right? But if you go to a place like El Paso, for years, folks in El Paso, mayors, advocates, community groups, businesses will tell you, El Paso is one of the safest communities in the country. And don't take my word for it, right? You can look at the statistics uh, and all of that. It has a Republican mayor who says that for folks who are going to qualify it based on what the party stripe of the person is. And yet it continues to be painted as this place, as many other border communities, where it's either a void, an unknown along the border, or almost a transitory place. And the reality is that there are millions of Americans living on border communities, both north, north and south, who make their lives just like the rest of us do any place else, right? So I, I do think that there is a lot of misinformation that by consequence or sadly by intent is designed to fuel fear and anxiety as a way to block progress that is doable, it's reachable, and it's knowable on a subject like immigration and modernizing our immigration system. So elections, Clarissa, are a chance to change exactly this dynamic that you're talking about. And we're just a few short weeks away from probably heard this a lot in your lifetime, as I have. People always refer to the whatever election is next as the most important election in our lifetime. 
I really believe that to be the case this time. It is incredibly important. And as we were, as I was mentioning when we were just beginning, there's been a lot of speculation that Latinos could really uh, significantly impact this election. Tell us a little bit about what, what you think the potential is and what your work is about right now to make sure that Latinos' voices are heard. I think we've got 50 million Latinos in the United States, some 29 million eligible to vote. And I know that those who do vote, I'm sorry, that those who are registered turn out in very, very high percentages. Give us a sense of what your work is in in this moment, because you've got to be one of the busiest people in the country right now. So thankfully, I'm one of many. There are so many folks working to ensure that eligible Americans are able to raise their voices this election season, that that always energizes me, just all the number of people that are working to achieve that. And I think every election is important. Sometimes the stakes are higher than others, but you know, for our community, I always say, look, every election is important. It's a way for each one of us to carry the aspirations and the needs and the values that not only we as an individual have, but our family and what we want to see for our communities in our country. And for Latinos, Latinos are one of the fastest growing segments of the electorate. And part of the reason is that we're a very young population, right? So every year we have nearly 1 million Latino U.S. citizens turning 18 and becoming eligible to vote. So this 2020, Latinos who are a community 60 million strong, we have about 32 million U.S. citizens who are voting age. One of the challenges we have is the voter registration gap. Think about it. Every election season, we all hear about just obscene amounts of money spent every election season, but very little of that actually goes into ensuring that eligible Americans are registered to vote. There's a lot more efforts, team, seems to me, that go into throwing people off the rolls than if actually registering people. So one of our missions is certainly to work towards closing that registration gap. Now, even with that gap, if if previous trends hold, we could see between 14 and 15 million Latinos vote in 2020, which would be an increase of about a million and a half over the last presidential election. And the great thing about that is that for people who care about having jobs that allow families to support themselves with dignity, to have good schools for their kids, to be able to afford a good roof over your head, and yes, to have an immigration system that America can be proud of, the growth of the Latino electorate should be a welcome development because those are some of the priorities that motivate this electorate. And so we are seeing, particularly this year, the pandemic, an effective response to the pandemic is the number one priority for Latino voters, followed by jobs and wages, by making sure that we stop discrimination against communities, so 
Clarissa, I, I, I always find it difficult and usually inappropriate to try to generalize about any one demographic or racial group and how they're going to vote because uh, they're usually more diverse than folks give credit for. You've talked about some of the issues that are most important to Latinos just now. I saw an article recently that had me scratching my head, and it was it was Biden struggling in Florida to gain the Latino vote. What's going on there? How, how complex are the political dynamics in terms of who Latinos vote for? So for me, one of the great things I like about working for a nonpartisan organization is that in doing our electoral work, our candidate is the voter or potential voter, right? And so, like I said, we're trying to make sure that we close that registration gap. We talk to people about registering that we are making sure people have information about their options to vote, particularly in light of the pandemic and places they can seek help if they need additional information or they feel that they've been discriminated against at the polls, for example. Now with that, we have always been out there telling campaigns, whether Republican, Democrat, or anybody, that they need to do their job and court these voters if they want their support. This is not rocket science. This is what campaigns and candidates do with any voter they want to win over. Yet, where it comes to the Latino community, I think the word to describe the level of outreach Latino voters traditionally get from campaigns and candidates is anemic. Just in August, we asked, we did a poll of Latino voters and asked if they had heard from candidates or campaigns. 64% had not. Now, those numbers are inching up. They've improved in September. But the surprising thing is not that those the numbers of people who are not being reached out to is so high because we have seen that pattern in previous presidential elections in 2016 and in 2012. The surprising thing is that after seeing the results of not reaching out to these voters, it's still happening. So is that just a misunderstanding or an underappreciation on the part of the campaigns of the enormous potential of this vote? It's like, I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking like, how could they miss it? Well, you know, you and I both, I think one, I, 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 I puzzled over this question now for more cycles than I care to admit. And I think there's a couple of things going on. I'm sad to say that at least over the last 10 years, one of the parties has either ignored Latinos or actually antagonized them. And then given that, the other party tends to take Latino voters for granted, sort of like, well, what option do they have? You would not use that kind of strategy for any segment of the electorate that you really want to win their votes over. And, and I get it. Campaigns, candidates, they need to make choices over the money they have and all of that. But what I would say to any reporter writing a story after any election is that when they hear anybody say, 
well, Latinos turned out for me or didn't, as that candidate, what investments did you make? Because candidates matter, their positions matter, and meaningful outreach is essential. And we have seen candidates that use that playbook and it pays off. So, Clarissa, for people who are listening who want to support your efforts and want to support Unidos, what's the best way for them to do that? And don't be shy. Talking about election season, there's three quick things any one of us can do. If you're lucky enough to be in one of those places that is pro-voter and has longer voter registration times and or same-day voter registration, number one is register or help somebody do it. And you can go to adelanteunidos.com and or share that with folks you know to begin that process. And say that again for those of us whose pronunciation is not as fluent as yours. Absolutely. So number one, registered or help someone do it. And to find information about it, you can go to Adelante Unidos, all one, A-D-E-L-A-N-T-E-U-N-I-D-O-S.com. And we can connect you there to states that have their online voter registration process. Fantastic. What else? Number two, learn about your voting options and make a plan. And the same thing applies. If you already have yours, then help somebody do it. And this is important because every election cycle, we have many first-time voters. And they might also be the first voter in their families they're not aware of all the different requirements and sometimes all the different ways. So, you know, think about it. How, where, and when are you going to vote? By mail or in person? And if in person, early or on election day? And make your plan and give yourself time. So that's number two. Don't leave, the, don't leave this to the last minute. Make a plan. Yes, make a plan. And if you are unfamiliar or need to check what are the, vo the vote by mail uh, guidelines for your state and the deadlines or the times for the early vote period, you can go to healthyvoting.org. And then number three is vote. So whether you are doing it by mail or in person, again, make sure if by, if by mail you get your ballot in on time either putting it in the mail, taking it to a secure drop box, or even dropping it off on during early vote or election day. If you're going to go vote early, take your mask, take your pen, take something or someone to be entertained with and give yourself time. And if you're going to do it on election day, for, for sure, give yourself time and follow those steps. And if you have any questions and you want to talk to an actual person, you can call 1-888-VE-VOTA or 1-888-839-8682. So number one, register or help someone do it. 
Number two, learn about your voting options and make a plan and help others do it. And number three, vote. And call that number, 888-839-8682. That, that's your cell, right, Clarissa? No. <laughs> uh, that, no. That, that would be too much even for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and, and one of the things I think is just so important to underscore, particularly for those of us who have pointed you from those of us uh, like me who have been around for many elections is elections are really not decided until the end. It is not too late to make a difference in this election. It is not too late to do any of the things that Clarissa just described, to register, to help someone do it. This election is not going to be decided until election day. And every day between now and the election, every hour between now and the election counts. We have to make the most of it. Uh, like you, Clarissa, at Share Our Strength of the No Good Hungry campaign, we're strictly partisan. Uh, we've had a lot of success in advancing our policies to feed kids by working with Democrats and Republicans and independents. But voting is so important in this election. As you said, the stakes are high and it's easy to despair if you watch some of the news and kind of fall victim to some of the acrimony, but every individual can actually make a difference in this election. And it's, uh, it, it's worth using every hour and every day and every minute that we have. So thank you for, for making the case for that. Yeah. And the, the great thing is that it is easy to get bogged down by all the information going on, the misinformation going on, and frankly, by the reality that our communities are going through. And the thing that keeps me going, frankly, at times is that the majority of Americans believe one of the greatest assets our country has is our diversity. And if you think about it, it's like a potluck. And voting is like a potluck. The, the, you know, your, the experiences you've had are different from mine, are different from the person that lives next door to you. But if we bring all of those things together, it helps us problem solve better, right? Because we tap everybody's experiences and knowledge and voting is kind of that way. And then afterwards, we also need to make sure that whoever wins, whether it's the person you supported or somebody else, that we stay the course and make sure that they not only guard this great asset that is our country's diversity, but that they stay focused on problem solving. And like you said, Many of the solutions that we need in your organization and my organization have been able to work on have brought together members from the Republican side and the Democrat side to get the solution on the table and to become law. And the only ones that can help make sure that that continues to be the case are us civil society, and we have a chance to send that message this election season. Uh, and what I love about the name of your organization, Clarissa, is as diverse as we are, as you've just so eloquently described, we want to be united. We want to be together. We're all in this country for a reason. And if we can bring that unity to bear, we can solve a lot of these problems. Most of the problems and issues that we care about are solvable. 
And this moment in time, Unidos is doing such important work uniting people. I feel like each of us have a choice every day in our lives as to whether we're going to be uniters or dividers. And it, it's easy to give in to the temptation to divide. And, and you can make an argument that sometimes some of the energy that goes into division creates necessary political change. But at the end of the day, I think we have to commit to uh, Unidos. I think we have to commit to being united to solve our, our toughest problems. And Unidos US and you, Clarissa Martinez, are just a great example of how that's happening. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. I can't imagine what your next 25 days are like as you're working to guide and encourage and motivate our citizens to to vote. And having you on and having this conversation during Hispanic Heritage Month has been really a special treat for all of us at Add Passion and Stir. So thank you. Thank you. It's been uh, it's been a joy to be in conversation with you about all these important things. And the next time, Clarissa, we talk about food. Yes, let's talk about food. <laughs> okay, we, we shall. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you've been listening to Add Passion and Stir with Clarissa Martinez the uh, Vice President of Unidos US. You can find at adpassionandstir.com our previous episodes and you can rate them and rank them and share them and subscribe to this podcast on a regular basis. A special thanks to the entire team at Share Our Strength and the No Get Hungry campaign and to our producers, McKenna and Woody at District Productive. Thanks for listening. I'm Billy Shore.